in Sunday school, we sang, Up from the Grave He Arose. What a collection of words. There's only six, but what a collection of words they are. They speak of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the cardinal doctrine of our faith. It's why we can sit here today and worship the King. What a privilege that is. What an honor that is. What a responsibility that is. That said, I was reading this week. And as I was reading early on in the week, I came across a phrase that I have heard a, a, maybe a thousand times, but um, I really didn't know where it originated. The phrase is acid test. Let me ask you, do you know where that phrase began? Does anybody know where that phrase began? I was baffled. I've heard it. You've heard it. Well, I did a little research. The term acid test began in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s during the gold rush in California when a man would come with a chunk of metal telling everybody that it was gold, he would bring it to the assayer's office and the assay would take a, a drop or two of nitric acid and he would, he would drop those, those drops on that, that, that piece of metal that that individual brought in. And um, that nitric acid would, would determine whether that, 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 that specimen was real gold or was not real gold, whether it was genuine or not. If it was fake, the acid would decompose the metal or, or, or discolor it immensely. But if it was, if it was genuine, the gold was unaffected. Today, we see ads on TV, buy gold, buy gold, because of its stability and its value. You can still purchase gold testing kits today to test your gold if you have any. But in God's view, our faith is more precious than gold. But it too must be tested. According to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, let me read that verse. Let me read 6 and 7 to you. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though for now, for a season, if need be, year in heaviness. You're going through problems. Though manifold, through manifold temptations or trials. Then in verse 7, it says that the trial of your faith, the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold. The trying of your faith is much more precious than gold that perisheth. Even gold perishes, but your faith doesn't need to perish. Though it be tried, what's being tried? Your faith is being tried or your faith is being tested with fire that it might be found under the praise and the honor and the glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. At the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord here, his desire 
is to reveal genuine faith in that passage of scripture. Speaking about genuine faith. Let me ask you a question. Do you have it? Are you sure you have it? And how do you know you have it? How do you know that? We may say we have it. I'm sure that all of us think we have it. But that's not enough. It's not enough to say, I have saving faith. We made good people. I'm sure all of us are good people. But that's not enough. Maybe at some point in your life you had some great thrilling spiritual experience. But even that's not enough. So what is enough? What is enough? Obedience is the answer. Obedience is enough. It's the crucial element. Not because it's necessary to earn salvation or heaven, but because it reveals the true quality of our faith. So I'd like to preach this morning about the necessity of knowing. Knowing what? Knowing what? Knowing that you're in fellowship with God. Knowing that your faith is genuine. We might call it also the acid test of our faith. Knowing we are in fellowship with God. What is fellowship? Fellowship simply means to have things in common with. Christian fellowship means to have things in common with Jesus Christ and with one another because of our faith. But we must know him in order to have that kind of fellowship. We must know him personally. And so if you will, turn to your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 1 John. I'm going to read the first couple of verses in 1 John, the first five, five verses. Beginning in verse 1, 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifest, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye may have fellowship. We may have things in common with one another. That we may have fellowship, you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. The whole, the whole idea of 1 John is that we might have joy, but it, not, just, not just filled up a bit, but that it's overflowing. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When the word of God says in that very first verse, 
what was from the beginning, of course. From the beginning was Jesus Christ. It was he that was from the beginning. And John's gospel puts it this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And who was the word? But Jesus Christ. And the word was with God, and the same was in the beginning with God. This is the embodiment of God's revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And in verse 4 of that same passage, he says, in him was life. This is reference to, the, to Jesus Christ, who is eternal life. He is the one that brings eternal life. So this morning, I'd like to preach on the necessity of knowing your faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's a lot of believers, a lot of professing believers that doubt their faith in Jesus Christ. But if we're all willing, by the end of the message this morning, we'll know the condition of our faith. We'll know if we are in fellowship with God. We might even find out whether we are saved or not. John the Apostle wrote five New Testament books, the Gospel of John, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation. His Gospel was written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's the theme of the whole Gospel of John, and it's, and it's spoken to us in the very back of the book. He tells us in his first epistle, in chapter 5 and verse 13, also in the back of the book, which is the theme of the book, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that are saved, that have been regenerated, that have been converted on the name of the Son of God, that you may, K-N-O-W, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us to believe, and he wants us to know it. John's gospel is about receiving eternal life, and his first epistle is about knowing you got it. And so, if we have it, we need to know we have it. Some folks don't. Some folks don't. And so, we'll spend the rest of our time in 1 John, kind of testing our faith, if you will. Let's have a word of prayer as we continue. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for how it presents to us not only ourselves, but what we must do to gain eternal life, how we must rely on what Jesus has done for that eternal life. And Lord, we ask this morning that as we go through these kind of texts about our fellowship with thee, that you would give us wisdom to understand and to know exactly what we're reading and what we're understanding about our own faith. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. John wants us to believe, and he wants us to know 
what we believe. So let's start with, with the first things. The key word in this book of 1 John is the word no. It's used 39 times in John's writing alone. Let me give to you just a few instances where he uses this word K-N-O-W. <clears throat> in John chapter 17 and verse 3 in the Gospel of John, we read, we know that we know God. Two times he uses the word know in one sentence. We know that we know God. In John chapter 3 and verse 2, he says, we know that we are the sons of God. How about 1 John 3, 2? Know that when he shall appear, we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life. And as we continue to go down in the book of 1 John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, we know that we are of the truth. 1 John 4, 13, we know that God abideth in us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, we know that we abide in God. And of course, in John chapter 5 and verse 13, these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, N-O-W, know that you have eternal life. But I think there are many sinning believers who are not sure of their eternal life. They're not sure of what they know. So the key word in this epistle, and frankly in John's writing, is no. There are two New Testament words for our English word no. First is gnosko, and it simply means an experimental or an, or an experiential knowledge. The second is the word oida, and that simply means a full knowledge or a mature knowledge of a subject. One is theoretical and one is practical. What do I mean by that? Well, we need to go beyond the intellectual. We need to go beyond simply knowing a fact about something or someone or some subject. My son-in-law, Jimmy, was a crane operator, and he taught folks how to operate cranes. What if he gave me a book to study about how to operate cranes, and I learned how to control the, the, the knobs and the dials and the valves and all of those kinds of things and that make the tracks go and made the bucket go and made the, made the, the crane lift up? Suppose I studied that book and I knew all about that. Would I still know how to operate a crane? I think not. I think not. It doesn't matter how much I study. I wouldn't know how to operate that crane. You may be intellectually knowing all of the truth about a subject, but what about the practical side of it? What about the getting into that cab and operating that, that crane by itself? Every time this word no is used in the book of 1 John, it's in the present tense. It also indicates a habitual, continuous action. That's what the present tense is talking about. It's an always active, habitual action. 
it reflects a lifestyle if we're thinking about our faith a lifestyle of experience with Jesus Christ that needs to be practical not simply theoretical it's a hands-on kind of a, a, a an experience unfortunately I think that many believers are not sure of what they know a good rule of thumb would be if you're not sure maybe you don't know stop guessing find out at very at the very least you might be out of fellowship with god and that brings us to the key thought in the book and the key thought in the book of course as we spoke of a moment ago is fellowship remember Fellowship is having things in common with God. Look at verse 6 in the first chapter of 1 John. Verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him. He that, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Verse 5. Let's go back to verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word. Um, he that keepeth his word. He that keepeth, he's whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected by uh, no we, hereby know we are in, in him. What does that mean? Well, folks, light exposes darkness. In the, another place in this passage of scripture, he says he is light. He is the inherent light. We're reflected light or we're supposed to be reflected light, but he's the inherent light. Light exposes things. When you walk into a dark room, a dark, very darkened room, and you flip on the light switch, light exposes everything in that room. It shows itself. And so walking in the light of God's word will expose our sin, will expose us to ourselves. And if we allow the light of God's word to expose our sin, and we're willing to confess that sin, we can enjoy restored fellowship with Almighty God. But if we will not let the light of Scripture expose those negative parts of our life, if we won't allow the Scripture to expose our sin, then we continue to walk in darkness. And the God who is perfect light rejects our claim of fellowship with him. Why? Because our behavior is in stark contrast to what he is. How can we say we have things in common with God? How can we say we have fellowship with God when our life is characterized by sin? Fellowship with God and walking around in darkness are mutually exclusive the one who is pretending to have things in common with God, the one who is pretending to be in fellowship with God, the one who is pretending that he knows God, as the scripture has already said, is a liar, just like Judas. So, the first check, the first acid test, if you will, of our faith, are you walking in the light? Or are you walking in darkness? And we'll get into that a little bit more as we keep going. The second check, 
Are we keeping his commandments? Chapter 2 in uh, in 1 John, chapters 3 and uh, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And hereby we do know, we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, he that says I am in fellowship with him, he that says I'm saved, he that says I have communion with God, he that saith, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And the truth is not in him. So, we know we're born again if we're keeping his commandments. That's the second test. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments, the scripture says. Note verse 4 again. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not a commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. If we say we know him, if we say we are saved, if we say we are in communion and having fellowship with him, but do not keep his commandments, then by the strong, inspired wording of this passage, you are a liar. First John chapter 2, verses 23. It says, this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So listen to that. This verse sheds light on this whole thing. And this is his commandment. So we talked about his commandment. We need to be keeping those commandments as test number two, if you will. This is his commandment that we should believe in the name of his son. To be lost is sin. So we need to believe on the name of his son. And we need to love one another. Those are his commandments. That verse sheds light for us. We not only need to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, we need to love each other. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. They're not disagreeable. They're not difficult. He doesn't ask us to do things that we can't accomplish. He tells us to do things that we can accomplish. Dads, moms, would you ever ask your little one to perform something that you knew he couldn't? Of course not. That would be cruel and unreasonable. And neither would your heavenly father. He tells us that we need to believe in him. Believing in Jesus Christ is as easy as eating a piece of bread. I am the bread of life, he says. It's as easy as flipping on a light switch. I am the light of the world. It's easy to believe on Jesus Christ. And we must do that. That brings us to the, to the third. We are loving one another. Are we loving one another? Are we truly loving one another? Are we loving other believers? Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He that saith he is in the light, he that says he's walking with Christ, 
He that says he has fellowship with the Lord, he that says he is saved, he is says he that saith he has fellowship with with Jesus Christ. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness, even unto now. In verse ten, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Scripture tells us in another place that God is love. His nature is love. If you're saved, you are a partaker of that nature. The Apostle Paul goes on to say that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. That's what happens at conversion. So because God is love, we show we are his children when we love one another. When we love one another. Now, the opposite is also true. We show we're not his if we do not love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. And we prove that love when there is nothing in us that causes another to stumble or to sin. That's what verse 10 says. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling. There's no occasion of causing another brother to stumble. The Apostle Paul goes on to say about that very subject, if meat will cause my brother to offend, I will eat no meat. Paul gave up his liberty. For others, are we willing to do the same? There is no fellowship. There is no communion between light and darkness, life and death, love and hate. The book of Amos tells us, can two walk together except they be agreed? There needs to be agreement here. There needs to be agreement. Wherever the love of God reigns, death and darkness flee. And that brings us to number four. Are we not loving the world? Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What is that verse saying? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. When we think of the world, that that, that word is cosmos. We get our, our word cosmetic or cosmopolitan from that word. It means an orderly arrangement. Why give such an admonition to us? We live here in this world. Well, because the world and its system is an orderly arrangement of rebellion against God. Listen to what the psalmist says about this world. Why do the heathen rage? He says this in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Folks, Satan is the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. 
Now, if you say you're not loving the world, but you continue to love the things in the world, then the strong language of verse 15 clearly states that the love of the Father is not in you. What are you loving? What trips your trigger? What's most important to you? What is it that you can't live without? Is it godly living or worldly living? David tells us what he lived for, and it's what we should live for. In Psalm 27, he says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and that I should inquire in his temple or meditate in his temple. Is that, is that what we cherish? Or do we cherish the things this world can give us? It's awful tempting. It's not that we shouldn't live here. We do live here. But to love what this world is offering us. You know, <laughs> I probably could be called the news junkie. I watch Fox News when it's on all the time. Smoke comes out of my ears sometimes, right past my hearing aids, when I hear some of the things that go on in this world. Some of the things people are trying to teach our little ones. Those are the things that are in the world. That's what's called, you know, in the book of Ephesians, the word of God says, we walk according to the course of this world. Look at the course of this world. It's how we walk. It's how we don't want to walk. But it's here. We live in its midst. And so we need to be in the word of God. We need to be sure of our faith. We need to be confident of our fellowship with almighty God. So let's go to number five. Are we purifying ourselves? Chapter uh, three and verse three. In First John, and every man, and that word is anthropos, man, woman, child, and every man that has this hope. What hope? The hope of eternal life. The hope of, of, of constant faith in Jesus Christ. The hope of fellowship. The hope of communion with him. And every man that has this hope, the hope of heaven. The hope that we are living eternally right now and that we don't have to wait till we croak. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. We have a pure Savior, and he desires for us to be like him. And he's and he's he's transforming us into his image on a regular basis. But we need to confess. We need to purify ourselves daily according to this word. Do we? Are we? If you have hope of seeing Christ one day, you will purify yourself and you'll keep from the evil of this world. Used to be you had to go looking for the smut and the filth but it's crashing through your iPhone right now. It's crashing through your front door, through your computer. It's all over the place. It's hard to even look for something wholesome 
and what pops up on the screen or on your phone. But Phil, if we have hope of seeing him one day, we need to purify ourselves and keep from the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Matthew tells us in uh, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But how do we keep that heart pure in such a filthy world we live in? By guarding it. That's how we keep it pure, by guarding that heart, by protecting it. Solomon the wise tells us how to do it. He says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep thy heart. The word keep is the word guard. Guard your heart with all diligence, with everything you got in you, because out of that heart come the issues of life. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it come the issues of life. Keep your heart, guard your heart, garrison your heart, put an army around your heart, and above all everything else, anything else that you do, Guard that heart from sin. Guard that heart from sin. We have five gates, don't we? We have the sight gate, the smell gate, the taste gate, the hearing gate, and the touch gate. Guard what you let in those gates. Guard what you let in those gates. Number six. Are we practicing righteousness? Are we righteous? Are we living right lives for Jesus Christ? Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. Notice that word deceive. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Little children. And that's how, that's how John referenced his people. He called them little children. That's us. We're like sheep. We're the sheep of his pasture. And Paul says, I'm sorry, and John says, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Well, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is righteous, and he desires for you and I to be righteous as well. God's righteousness is in stark contrast to the righteousness of men. Ours is what? Like filthy rags. No matter what we do, our righteousness is as filthy rags. The scripture says God's righteousness is pure. It's perfect. It's uncontaminated. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about it. These Pharisees kept all the laws of God, all the Mosaic laws, they kept them. And yet Jesus says, except your righteousness, except your righteousness, Exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no case enter the kingdom of God. Why did he say that? Because their righteousness was of self. Their righteousness was of themselves. Ours must be of Christ. 
Their righteousness was of works and what they did. Our righteousness needs to be of Christ and what he has already done. Verse 7. Remember I said, check this word, deceive. Let no man deceive you. Let no man deceive you. Verse 7 begins with a strong admonition about deception. It is a lie to believe that a man can practice sin on a regular basis and still be saved. Righteousness is normal for the real Christian. Matthew goes on to say in chapter 5 and verse 6, blessed or happy, 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 happy are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, why? They will be filled. Righteousness is simply right living for God. Hunger and thirst are involuntary cravings. You can't help them. You don't turn them off and you don't turn them on. Are your cravings based on the dark, shadowy corridors of your own heart? are on the predetermined righteousness of God's holy word. There's only two ways. Who was it? Dr. Strobling said, serving God or serving self. Dear ones, lean not onto your own understanding. You'll get in trouble. Lean not onto your own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Let me ask you a question. What are you doing when you're relying on your own understanding. I think what we're doing when we rely on our own thinker, our own understanding, is we're setting ourselves up as our own God. He says, lean not unto your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. When we put God on the throne of our heart, then then we can live a life that's pleasing to him. Lean not onto your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. What's the path of your direction? What direction are you going in? He desires to direct your path. And in order for him to do that, you need to rely on him, not you. How often a problem will come up in my life and before I go to God, I'm going to Joe. I want to take care of the problem. That's a man thing, I guess. I don't know. But I try everything on my own many times before I go to God. When will I learn? I'm in my 80s. I still haven't learned it all. And I'll not learn it all till I'm with glory. If you're clean on the inside, It'll show on the outside. It'll show in your demeanor, in your deportment, where you go, what you watch, what you do. Your outward appearance will also reflect your inner attitude. And so we've seen six of the checks or six of the, the points of the acid test of your faith. Now let's look at the seventh. Are you confessing Jesus Christ? 
Are you witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ? Chapter 4 and verse 15 of 1 John. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. John Wesley said, Whosoever shall openly confess in the face of all opposition and danger that Jesus is the Son of God, God abideth in him. Now, we might glibly say that. We might glibly say those words. But to say them with absolute belief is proof of conversion, no matter what we're facing. You can witness to people, talk to them about coming to church. You can mention God. You can mention portions of scripture. You can go to church. No one cares about that. But mention Jesus Christ and those folks go crazy. They can't stand the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saving faith, people, is not barren. It's obedience to the word of God. These present active verses, and that first John is full of, of present tense verbs. It's chock-a-block full. Almost every verb in first John is in the present tense, and it means a habitual, constant flowing of those characteristics. These present active verses we've been studying are not addressed to people that may have believed something in the past, but rather to you that are believing something right now. Right now. That's what First John is talking about. Right now, present tense, active, practical faith. Saving faith is active. It's present. If your faith is speculative and intellectual, and not experimental and practical, then this epistle has nothing in the world to say to you. But if you have real saving faith, this letter says you should know you have it. I trust you do know you have it. Do you? First John 5.13 again. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, A-N-O-W, know that you have eternal life. Not just know it up here because somebody said it, because you said a few words 30 years ago, but that you know it right now, right now. These tests of our faith in Jesus Christ don't so much have to do with where you prayed the sinner's prayer or when you prayed the sinner's prayer or what you prayed when you prayed the sinner's prayer or if you had enough faith when you prayed the sinner's prayer. But what are you believing right now? That's what First John is saying. What are you doing about it right now? What are you trusting right now? What are you believing right now? What are you believing right now for your deliverance from sin? Are you walking in the light? Are you keeping his commandments? Are you loving other believers? 
Are you hating this world's rotten, filthy system? Are you purifying yourself daily? Are you practicing righteous living? If the answer to any one of these tests, these checks, is no, then there's a problem. And you'll need to get it right so that First John is true for you. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that you have eternal life beyond the shadow of any doubt? Do you know absolutely that you have eternal life? We want that to happen. We want that to be true for each one of us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If the answer to any one of those questions is no, then the answer to that is confess your sin. Because he is faithful, not you. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I've often thought of this verse and, and thought that he not only forgives my sin, but it says that he'll cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I think I've used this illustration before. Have you ever seen those old Western movies where they were cutting down trees and, and they, they slide the trees into the river and the rivers just chuck a block full of logs going down the river and they comes to a little narrow spot in the river and those logs get all jammed up in, in one corner. There's a big log jam. Well, that's what he's talking about here. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But he's also will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll take the dynamite of his word and blow up that, that log jam of sin and let that float downstream as well. Sometimes we forget our sin. We put it in the cupboard for the night and then it stays there and we forget that it was there. And we've, we've, we've got thousands of sins in the cupboard and we never ask forgiveness for them. And so our fellowship is, is thwarted. But if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us our sins, the sins we know, but he will also forgive those sins that we forgot about. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I need to be cleansed from time to time from all my unrighteousness. Do you? I trust you will take care of business if you need to. Let's finish the last half of 2023 with full assurance of our fellowship and our eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love to us. We thank you for your word that just is like a mirror. It reflects back to us what we are, who we are. It reflects our own sin and our own ugliness. Lord, help us to confess our sin to thee, to get back into fellowship with thee, to enjoy that sweet, confident knowledge that we indeed will be with you one day. And we'll give you the praise for that because we ask it in the precious, holy name of Jesus Christ.